Let's learn some Torah. All right, welcome, my friends, to Daily Power Parsha, where we study the daily section of the Parsha. As the name promises, that's exactly what we're doing. So this week's Torah portion is Shoftim, and there's so many themes and elements of discussion. Today, we have a very interesting theme, a theme that I'm very um, passionate about. So we'll, we'll jump into it. You'll see what I mean in a moment. Hold on a second here. All right, let's share my screen and jump in. Okay, can you guys see that? Shoftim reading for, yes. All right, amazing. Torah reading for Shoftim. Today is Wednesday, we're up to the fourth reading. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Chai, 18, beautiful number. Verse number six. Here we go. And if a Levite, if you recall yesterday, we ended our conversation speaking about the Levites. They don't have a portion. They need to be supported. The Kohanim and the Levim by the community. Um, we spoke about the Kohanim having various um, elements of the sacrifice that they get to eat. Okay, here we go. And if a Levite comes from one of your cities out of all Israel where he sojourns, he may come where, whenever his soul desires to the place the Lord will choose. Let's continue, and then we're going to read some Rashi on this. And he may serve in the name of the Lord his God, just like all his Levite brothers who stand there before the Lord. So Rashi explains the following. Just to clarify, because the Torah used the word Levite, and Rashi needs to clarify, we're speaking about a Kohen, a priest. How do we know this? Because of the context. So let's read Rashi. And if the Levite comes, by the way, this is why Rashi is invaluable. I mean, you can't really learn Torah, learn Chumash without Rashi. Rashi is like, ba not basic, but like essential understanding. So if the Levite comes, so Rashi says, one might think that scripture is referring to an actual Levite, not a Kohen. Now, remember, so the tricky thing here is that the Kohen comes from the tribe of Levi. So technically the Kohen is a Levite also, but they're a Kohen of the Levite family. So you might think, Rashi says, that when the Torah says, when the Levite comes, it says the Levi, the Levite, you might think it's a Levite, not a Kohen. Therefore, Scripture says, and he may serve, which is in the next verse, verse 7. Where is that? I'm going to highlight it here, right here, verse 7. And he may serve. So, and since Levites are not fit to serve in the whole service, we see that this verse is not referring to them, but rather to Kohanim. In other words, Rashi is deducing, and it's not just Rashi coming up with this. Trust me, this is based on sources, as you see in the brackets, Sifri, which is one of the classic Midrashic understandings and commentaries on the Torah. So, Midrashic expositions on the Torah. So the Sifri says that the fact, you have to understand the word Levi here in the context of the verses. So, if you have a word like Levi and you don't have a context, so it means Levi. The broader category of Levi. But when you have in context a discussion about doing the service, performing the service in the Mishkan or in the, or in the temple, in the tabernacle or temple, so then you know that the Levi that's being mentioned is not the Levi generally, but the Kohen specifically. All right, that's a very long way of saying we're talking about a Kohen right now. 
Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. I hope so. All right. But that's how Rashi sees it and understands it in context. So what is the, what is the lesson that the Torah is teaching us about the Kohen? Now we know it's a Kohen out of Levi. So what's the message? Here we go. Next verse, next Rashi. This teaches us, so Rashi says, and he may serve. This teaches us that a Kohen may come and offer his own free will and obligatory sacrifices even when it is not his shift. So let me explain. We've talked about this before, but it's important to all get on the same page. So here's a reminder. There were many Kohanim amongst the Jewish people. They were divided by family. Now, in general, all the Kohanim, all the priests, came from Aaron, who was the first priest, the first high priest, and his children. Hold on. Did I cut out? I want to check in. Did I, did I, uh, did we cut out for a minute, for a second there? Yeah. Am I, yes? You cut out, yep. Okay. It tells me that my, uh, my internet connection is unstable. Okay. So what was the last thing that I said? Who remembers? Don't worry, it's not a pop quiz. I'm just. You started the new con. You didn't. You just got into starting after you finished discussing why, you know, specifying who's who. Then you just started to get into why. Good. Right, why there are shifts. Okay, so let's talk about the shifts. There were a lot of Kohanim, and the Kohanim were divided by family. Now, in general, all priests came from Aaron, the high priest, the brother of Moses, right? Moses was. The father, well, Moses was a Levi, and his brother became the first Kohen, and his children, Aaron's children, became uh, Kohanim as well. So ultimately, they come from the same individual. But when you talk about Aaron's kids and then their kids, there were, there were, it was broken down by families. Within the priestly unit, there were different families. And the way it settled was that there were 24 family shifts that served in the temple. Each one served for two weeks. Not two weeks at a time, they served for a week at a time, but they basically did two one-week shifts throughout the year. Does that make sense? 24 families, each serving for two weeks. How many weeks is that? 24 times two? 48. 48, hey Ray, good to see you, welcome. <laughs> Just in time to answer the, uh, the pressing math questions here. Okay, so we have, we have 24 shifts that are based on priestly families, each one doing two weeks, not in a row, but a week, and then 24 weeks later, or 25 weeks later, whatever, doing their second shift. Um, so the Torah is now addressing the question, well, what happens in between shifts? What happens if the priest wants to bring an offering? Or maybe that priest has to bring an offering. Do they need to wait until their shift comes up. Are you with me on the question? Do they have to wait for their weekly shift? And the answer is no. Nisht. Nain. They do not have to wait for that shift to come back in. So here we go. Let's do Rashi again. This teaches us when the Torah says and he may serve, the Kohen may serve, this teaches us that the Kohen or a Kohen may come and offer his own free will and obligatory sacrifices even when it is not his shift. That's the big idea. Rabbi, what does the priest do for all those weeks when he's not on shift? Ah, oh, good. I'm glad you asked. Candy crush is, the, is what the Kohen would do to keep the hand sharpened. Actually, I'm sorry. Fruit ninja. 
You know Fruit Ninja? Were you? Okay. Yes, thank you, William. Right, this is a joke. It's Tetris, obviously. No. The Kohen would have other services. The Kohen is a spiritual teacher, is a spiritual leader. So in addition to the actual priestly service, there was probably training that went on and other forms of, of, of worship and service that went on. There was other stuff. And here the Torah clarifies that amongst the things that the Kohen would do when it wasn't their shift or his shift is have the opportunity to bring additional sacrifices and offerings. Now this comes from, again, Rashi doesn't make up the commentary. Rashi collects and presents classic Jewish understanding of what the Torah is saying. Where does this come from, this idea? BK109B. Now, honestly, we're dealing in a world of pixels. I don't know why it would be problematic to write it out. Why BK? Whatever. Um, BK stands for Bava Kama. It's one of the tractates of the Talmud, Bava Kama 109b. That's where this idea is discussed, and it's derived from the verses that, that essentially the Torah is teaching us that a Kohen can serve off shift as well. Another explanation. It further teaches concerning Kohanim who come to the temple as pilgrims on the festival that they may offer together with those of the shift and perform the services connected with the sacrifices that are brought because of the festival. For instance, the additional offerings, the musaf of the festival, even though there should be a space there, that is another typo, even though it is not their shift. So again, we have another understanding, slightly different, but pretty much along the same lines, that this teaches us that a Kohen can, can offer sacrifices not on their shift either. The first, opinion, the first understanding from Bava Kama, from the Talmud says, at any point in time they want to bring a sacrifice, they can just show up and make it happen, even if it's not their shift. The second explanation, which is not a dispute, it's just another explanation, is that on the holidays, even if it's not your shift, if you were a Kohen, you could come in and offer an offering on the holiday. And where does that come from? That comes from the Sifri, um, sukkah 55b. Okay, good. So we have now two uh, multiple ways of understanding this verse about the Kohen being able to serve in the name of the Lord just like his Levite brothers. So again, if we're to untoggle Rashi, untoggle? Maybe. If we're to look at this without Rashi and reread verses 6 and 7, here's how I'm going to read it with my own commentary. And if a Levite, which refers to a Kohen, comes from one of your cities out of all Israel where he sojourns because he's on his break, because he's not on his shift. Are you with me on this? Right? He's in between shifts. So he may come to the temple and serve whenever his soul desires. Oh, sorry. He may come whenever his soul desires. Where? To the place the Lord will choose, the temple in Jerusalem. And when he comes to the temple, he may serve in the name of the Lord his God, just like all his Levite slash Kohanic brothers who stand there before the Lord. So even when it's not your shift, again, you being a Kohen, even when it's not your shift, you're allowed to go to the temple, you're allowed to serve and offer sacrifices and do your thing. Again, not suggesting, um, so it looks like my internet connection just uh, blinked out again, not suggesting that a whole shift, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Photobomb. Photobomb? Yes, not photobomb. Um, service bomb. Their fellow Kohanim, 
right? That would create probably a, a challenge if a whole shift said, well, hey, each of us individually is allowed to come, so let's come together and let's take on this other shift that is serving in the temple and, 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 and create a rumble. I mean, this is not West Side Story here. This is like, this is the temple. So it means if you're a private Kohen that has a shift that's not right now, you're still allowed to show up and do your thing. Okay, let's continue verse number eight. Okay, one question. Sure. Could it, could it also mean that perhaps if a pilgrim is there and is needed... Ah, and help out. That's not a bad. That's not a bad idea. Maybe backup, right? Call in the relief pitcher. Yeah, yeah it's like the coin is struggling in the late innings, right? He's lost speed on the fastball, right? The curve is not working the way uh, the way it usually works, right? You got to go to the bullpen and you get your closer, right? It's like, hey, Mr. Cohen, we need you, possibly, very possibly. Now take a look at verse eight. They shall eat equal portions, except what was sold by the forefathers. And now you're wondering, what? What was sold by the forefathers? What is going on here? What does this mean? Again, you try to study the Torah without Rashi. And I'm going to say, not you specifically, but one who tries to study Torah without Rashi, good luck. Good luck making sense of this. I mean, we could try and come up with all sorts of our own ideas that are not accurate or we can see what actually our sages tell us. So here we go. Um, they shall eat equal portions. This teaches, Rashi says, that they, the Kohanim, present as pilgrims on the festivals, receive a portion of the hides of the festival, oh gosh, what's going on here? Of the festival burnt offerings and the flesh of the he goats of sin offerings of the festival. So basically, the pilgrims, the Kohanim that are not in the shift, but are visiting for the holiday. If you recall, the second understanding, the second explanation in this previous Rashi talked about um, the Kohanim that visit for the holidays, that they're allowed to participate in the service. So they can, oh, not only can they participate, but they can also enjoy of the hides and of the meat. And for this, I'm going to start, I'm going to stop sharing. Why? Because now I need to tell you an anecdote. As you know, on occasion, because I've shared this before, I take my kids on outings. Yeah, got a few kids. We take them on outings, especially summertime. They're not in school, blah, blah, blah. So one of the places that, I that I've taken them that I've told you about is like these arcade places, right? They have like, the, and you know what I'm talking about, these, mega, these megaplexes that have like the bowling, the arcades, the laser tag, the bumper cars, some of them have like rock climbs and like all this cool, like just totally like decked out for the kids. Okay, now sometimes when you go to these websites, they'll tell you like what, what their specials are. And sometimes they'll say like the Tuesday special is arcades, like one set price for all you can play. So let's say it's $15 or $20 and you have unlimited games. Instead of buying a game card, are you, am, I, am I boring you guys yet? Just let me know when I'm boring you guys. So instead of buying a game card that has like a certain number of credits that the kids swipe, and then per game it takes away the credits, on Tuesdays, let's say, you spend 15 bucks or 20 bucks or 10 bucks, whatever it is, and you have unlimited credits, you can play all the games, okay? Did I cut out there again? I'm not sure if I did. I'm like a little choppy. I feel like 
strobe lighting is in operation. Okay, here's the deal. Back to our story. So they have a rule when it comes to unlimited gameplay, if you get that unlimited deal, that you don't get the, the points to then trade it in for the, little, for the prizes at the end. Are you with me on that? Usually when you play the games, based on how you perform in the game, you get either they spit out tickets, but now everything's digitally on the card, and then you swipe the card at the end, and then you spent like 40 bucks on a card, and you walk away with a dollar store stuffed animal thing, and you feel like, oh, I've, I've made it in life. Like this is like, this is peak childhood right here. Like that's it, we've made it. So, but when you have the unlimited play, since they know that you can play the same game 50 times in a row, and you can clear them out of all their dollars, of all, the, of all the prize items. So therefore they say, you're not gonna walk away with the prize. You can play whatever games you want, as many times as you want, but you're not gonna then clear us out of all the prizes. Does that make sense? That sounds kind of fair, right? I hope that's fair. And at this point, you're wondering why am I saying this? Because the Torah is trying to avoid a misunderstanding, a misconception. You might think that we allow any Kohen all you can serve whenever you want. You can show up, holiday, not holiday. You can do your thing if you want to. But you're not going to walk away with any prizes. You're not going to get the hide. You're not going to get the meat. You're not, because there's a shift. And a shift is a shift. You're not part of the shift. So you want to anyway participate? You can participate. But you're not going to walk away with some of the stuff. That's what the Torah says we should not think. Don't think that you don't walk away with anything you in fact do. Sorry for the double, triple, quadruple negatives here. Don't think that the Kohen is allowed to serve but does not get any of the benefit of that service. The Kohen can serve and benefit from the service. Let's head back into our text. Okay, this is all to explain Rashi. Again, starting again, they shall eat equal portions. This teaches that they, the Kohanim present as pilgrims on the festivals, not the shift, the pilgrims receive a portion of the hides of the festival burnt offering and the flesh of the he goats of sin offerings in the festival. Now one might think, okay, let's continue inside. Now one might think that these Kohanim may participate also in sacrifices which are brought unrelated to the festival, such as the Tamid, the daily burnt offerings, Musafi Shabbat the additional offerings on the, on the Sabbath, on which a festival may coincide, and sacrificial vows and donations. Therefore it says, except what was sold by the forefathers, except what his ancestors sold to one another in the days of David and Samuel, when the system of ships was established, trading with each other, with thus, you take your week and I will take my week, etc. What we have here are three categories, and I'd love to break them down for you so that you have clarity on the law. Point number one, I'm going to try to break this down to three clear points. Point number one, any Kohen can serve, can bring an offering whenever they want. That's point number one. Point number two, any Kohen can participate in, any, in, in the holiday service even whilst not on their shift, whilst, I don't know my English now, even when it's not their shift, and enjoy some of the hide and some of the meat. But, point three, any Kohen that serves at any time other than a holiday that's not on their shift, although per point one they can serve, they do not walk away with the hides and the meat. Does that make sense? 
Yes. Maybe. Possibly. Okay. So again, just very succinctly, now I can drop it down, I realize, into two points. If a Kohen shows up in the temple as a visitor, right, not officially with the pass on, on their shift, if the Kohen shows up, any day, any time, they can participate in the service, but they will not get the hides and the meat. Except for the festivals. If they serve on the festival, even not on their shift, they can enjoy some of the skins and some of the meat. That is the short story here. Okay? Make sense? Questions, comments on this law? Okay. So that's what it means in verse 8. They shall eat, they shall eat equal portions on the holidays, except not on the holidays, it has to go by what was sold by the forefathers, what was bartered and negotiated by the priest, 24 priestly families to allocate which week you get, which week I get, etc. And honestly, I want to go back to my bowling example, my arcade bowling example. It's, no, it's kind of like, you know, when you're bowling, you guys go bowling ever? Who bowls? Anybody bowl anymore? On occasion? No? All right. Whatever. Sometimes people bowl. It's a thing. So, you know, you go to a bowling alley, if you're not a professional, you go to a bowling alley and like you go with some friends or with kids, or whatever, and, and now it's like, okay, who, who bowls first, right? It's like a whole thing. Like, I want to go first, you will go first. Uh, I want to go last to see what everyone gets so that I can like try to beat the score. Hochachman in how, you know, the order of the bowling. So the shifts negotiated. That's, that's what happened in the days of our ancestors, so to speak. It wasn't in the days of the patriarchs. They didn't have a temple then. It was in the days of uh, David and Solomon, where they went ahead and they, the 24 priestly families went ahead and they, you take this week, I'll take that week, you go first, I'll go second. They allocated the weeks. So based on that allocation, you, overall we respect that with regards to who eats from the sacrifices. Except for the holidays where anyone can come in, any Kohen can serve and also enjoy all right, I th Rabbi, Rabbi, yes. At this point, it's still just the tabernacle. When is the temple built? This is a prophetic conversation. Oh. Yeah. This is Moses Moses speaking to the people, right? He's foreshadowing the, the, the division of the shifts that would happen later on. So what? how many years after the transfer? Into it's probably about 400. Uh, I don't know if it's 400. Is it? Um, let's think. It's definitely a few hundred years. I would say... So initially it was the tabernacle in Israel. Tabernacle for a while. It's, it's definitely a few centuries. Definitely a few hundred years between Moses and David. And by the way, when you, when you look up, you know, King David when he lived, when the temple was built, there's a major disagreement between what I would call secular historians and Jewish historians as to the time frame that these things exist in. So I, I think it's like two, three, four hundred years later, closer to four hundred years later, that this that the temple is built um, after Moses passes away. Were they still so were they still in their circular living, the tribes and no, no. no. The Mishkan, the tabernacle was in a in a location and it was in various locations. For a while, it was in Shiloh or Shiloh. Um, it was in where else was it? There were other cities that the that well, the. Traveled to different cities. 
not necessarily like an exhibit, but it was it for various necessary reasons it moved around a little bit, but it it typically was stationary and people would come to it as opposed to the previous 40 years in the desert model where it kind of literally traveled with the people and everyone camped around it. So that shifted, but it was still a temporary edifice until such time as um, as the temple was was built in a solid stone structure, not out of panels that are, you know, you can you can take apart like a sukkah type thing, um, but a larger one, of course. Okay, so that is the law regarding the Kohanim and the shifts and all that good stuff. Let's get back inside and let's talk about the second half of today's reading, which shifts gears a bit and talks about fortune telling. See, I knew we were going to talk about this. I'm joking. Let's go ver- well, I mean, I did, but not, not for any uh, nefarious uh, means. Verse number nine. When you have come to the land the Lord your God is giving you. Again, this is a, an opening that appears countless times in this very book of Deuteronomy. Moses is speaking to his people, his, his, his community, shortly before his passing, talking to them, encouraging them, inspiring them in their, their next chapter, which is going to happen without him. So when you come to the land that God is giving you, here we go, you shall not learn to do like the abominations of those nations. Don't follow in their ways that are not kosher. What does that mean specifically in this context? It could be, could be many things, but here specifically, verse 10 clarifies. There shall not be found among you anyone who passes his son or daughter through fire. So this was a pagan form of worship. We actually find it recorded in the pagan books that they used to do this. And there are two versions. One version was they created fire. Two walls of fire. Imagine like massive bonfires on on either side with a path in between. And then they would walk or have their children walk in between. That's That's one version. The other version is that they would actually throw the kids into the fire. Okay, so that's another version. Pagan worship, idolatrous practices. Now you might think, why would anyone ever ever do that? Right. Who knows <laughs> why? <laughs> I don't know why, but this was what was done. I mean, this is the things th- kind of, things that were kind of crazy were done. So the Torah says Moses tells the people, don't learn from their pagan idolatrous practices. Don't do this passing the kids through fire. There shall not be found anyone who does this, nor a soothsayer or a diviner of auspicious times, one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, a pithom sorcerer, a yedoa sorcerer, or a necromancer. Okay, what are all these things? So let's, let's look at some Rashi. And let's try to get some definitions here, all of these things. Okay, here we go. Rashi about passing the son or daughter through fire. Rashi clarifies based on San 64b. That again, I don't, I don't know why they can't just write it out. San is Sanhedrin. It's one of the Talmudic tractates. For some reason, I again, it's it's a bit of a criticism here. 
they take Talmudic tractates and decide to shorten them, even though, like, whatever. Okay, here we go. Um, this, Rashi says, this was the Molech worship. There was an idol called Molech. It was a pagan idol. Again, this, these are things and practices that are verified outside of Torah as well. These were things that were done. The Molech worship was as follows. They made two bonfires on either side, as I told you before, and passed the child between them both. But what I told you before also stands, uh, stands as well. And that is that there was also human, sorry, child um, I would, uh, sacrifice, maybe murder. I don't know what you would call it. I mean, I prefer murder, where they would throw the, the child into the fire. Um, okay. I'm going to say something that's going to be a bit of a hot take, no pun intended, although always puns intended. You know, they have these retreats that you can go and spend like a ton of money. These like self-help empowerment retreats. Yes, you know about these things. And part of it is like walking on coals. Are you familiar with this? You walk on, you spend like $40,000 to then walk on coals. Again, okay, so I'm not, it's a thing. It's a thing. It's, it, it's help people. It's also hurt people. I don't only mean the fire. I mean, there's a lot of conversation about, about these types of things and do they work? Are they real, legit or not legit? I'm not weighing in on this. I will just say that if a person wonders, well, why would anyone ever fire and walk through fire and pass through fire and what's the deal? There are even today things in which things are done because it's, I don't know. I, I can't, I don't know if I can define it but I just want to kind of paint a, a modern, I'm not saying it's idol worship, I'm just saying a modern expression of perhaps a similar, a similar sentiment. Rabbi, Rabbi, yes. there was something out in the Southwest, like- The sweat know, lodge, the sweat lodge. Yeah. And many people- People died. Yeah. Yes. yeah, 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 yeah. I'm an expert on that because I heard a podcast on it. So I consider myself now an expert on the, on the sweat lodge accident that happened in Arizona. Yes. So it was a very big tragedy. It was one of these guys who fashioned himself a guru and a, you know, and you pay me, you know, X number of tens of thousands of dollars and I'll change your life and you'll be very vulnerable. And part of that vulnerability is going into the sweat lodge and, you know, depriving yourself of comfort and everything. And you walk out transformed and or very hot. And unfortunately, people literally died in that sweat lodge in this incredible tragedy. There were criminal charges brought against him. I think he served time in jail. Last I heard, again, based on the podcast, was he was back in the business of, of this. And the families of the victims, all they want is that people that call themselves self-help or whatever, there should be some guidelines to govern the behavior to make sure that things don't get out of control. Because at this point, there's no body that governs it and people spend money and put themselves in compromising positions. So why, is, is there though an allure to like putting oneself, one's body in vulnerable situations in fire, in heat? I think there is. Can we imagine how back in the day there was an allure of worshiping an idol by walking through fire? Sure. Is it the same thing? I'm not saying it's the same thing. I'm just, I'm just drawing a parallel with allure and allure. There's something about fire that's, that's alluring. I mean, we have a whole festival that is centered around fire. 
We call it Burning Man, which I believe is canceled for the second year in a row, right? So anybody with me on Burning Man? Burning Man? Yes? No? Okay, whatever. Anyway, here's my point. My point is not to, I'm not coming down on any of the modern applications necessarily. What I am saying is that there's some sort of allure. If it sounds weird and bizarre, okay. That's the way they did things back then in the service of idols. Let's get back to our Rashi to look, about, look, to look at what other categories are prohibited. A, a soothsayer is also not kosher. What's a soothsayer, says Rashi? This is one who takes his rod in his hand and says, as though to consult it, shall I go or shall I not go? We call this today a Ouija board. Ouija board, is that, what's, is that how you say it? Yeah, okay, oh, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Whatever, I don't, ever, I don't think anyone takes that too seriously, but back in the day, you know, you take a rod in the hand and you consult with it, not kosher. Similarly, it says in Hosea, Hosea my, people take counsel, my people takes counsel of his piece of wood. And his rod declares to him, this was a, um, a lament from a Jewish prophet that ultimately, I mean, I probably don't need to tell you this because we've talked about it many times. Ultimately, the Jewish people did devolve into idolatry, right? We know this, yes, that's why the first temple was destroyed, because they literally fell into idolatry. Okay, so in the prophet Hosea says to the people, look, look what happened to my people, the Jewish people. They take counsel in, 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 this guy takes counsel in his piece of wood. And this guy's rod talks to him. Meshukah, right? But that's what's going on. This is a lament of the Jewish people falling into the same idolatrous ways. But overall, what's the point? The point here is, is that that soothsaying is not a Jewish practice. What about a diviner of auspicious times? What does that mean? So in Hebrew, it's Ma'onin. Rabbi Kiva says, these are people who determine the times, oh note, saying such and such a time is good to begin a venture. Someone who says, oh, I've looked into the future, I've looked into the calendar, or I've you know, looked at this card or that card, and I see that next Tuesday is a good time to, or you'll meet somebody or whatever it is, you know, on a certain date. So the diviner of auspicious times, again, not kosher. That's Rabbi Akiva's understanding of Ma'onein. The sages say, however, um, that means the majority of sages, that explain it differently. That the Hebrew word ma'onein, not onot, a ma'onein here, means something else. That this refers to those who catch the eyes. So the word is ma'onein. You can either, every, okay, let me back up for a second. Every Hebrew word has a root, a shorish. I mean, I also like that in, in other languages. You know, there are Latin root, roots of words and whatnot. So um, in Hebrew, the word ma'onein, which is the word that is here about the prohibition, there should not be a ma'onein. What's a ma'onein? Rabbi Kiva says ma'onein comes from the word onot. And the, the other sages say it comes from the words enayim. So either it comes from the word times or eyes. So each could mean something. So if you read it as times, it means don't be the divine of auspicious times. If you read it as eyes, what it means is don't do things that deceive the eyes, which according to this brackets that is helpful, they deceive by creating optical illusions. Now, does that mean that David Copperfield is, uh, you know, is uh, doing something, you know, an abomination or David, Bl David Blaine, David Blaine, did I get the guy's name right? Jewish guy, whatever. David Copperfield is also Jewish. So um, uh, Houdini, I mean, were they, 
I, I, I think when it's for entertainment purposes, I think there might be a difference because everyone knows it's a trick. And, and by the way, if you don't know that it's a trick and you take it seriously, so just FYI, it's a trick. I remember we had a mental... Okay, I, I, I'm into this topic also a little bit. I happen to be into different things also. So um, when it comes to illusions, so there used to be magicians. But now the big word is mentalists. You know mentalists? You know what the word mental, you know what it means? You know what a mentalist means? It's basically a magician that, with a different name. It's the same concept. Basically, there's a trick. Like, oh no, this mentalist can really, under, when you take a piece of paper and you write a number on the piece of paper, they know what you're writing because you beam it to them. They can tap into your mind and they know what you're thinking. You know what the truth is? That's baloney. That's not true. There's a trick. There's a trick. And how do I know this? Because you can literally go to websites and buy the trick. And you know what you're not buying? You're not buying a secret soul or a brain power. You're buying a trick. There's either technology or magnets or something. There's some sort of trick that allows the illusion to take place, but they call it mentalist because the type of trick is not making the Statue of Liberty disappear, but it's reading your thoughts. Hence the term mentalist, but it's still a technique and technology that can be learned and purchased. Again, if you see any trick, just Google it and you'll find the website or a, or a mentalist forum. They have forums where you can buy it. I remember seeing some things live and I'm like, no, this is, has, this, like, this is crazy. And an hour later, I'm like, okay, I got, even if you don't know how it's done, the fact that somebody could sell it to you for, you know, uh, $99 means that it's not uh, supernatural. But I don't think that's what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is not entertainment. We're talking about in the, in the kind of like a dark black magic sorcery type thing. So a creator of illusions, I'm just going to pull Rashi back up. A creator of, and again, if, I, if I'm ruining anybody's fun with, with magic or mentalists, my apologies, but I think you should know the truth. You deserve to know the truth that it's, uh, it's entertaining. I, I, I love this stuff, but it's, it is what it is, and it's not what it's not. Back inside, let's look at Rashi. So the second interpretation of Ma'onein is someone who deceives by catching the eye or creating illusions. Again, not when the eye... You, you pay 50 bucks to see David, or $200 to see David Copperfield in Vegas... You know what you're in for. You're in for a fun show and to be wowed. But no one has any spiritual or mystical or, or worship or ritual overtones. But when it's to that level, then we have a problem. So the Torah says, right, these are the, these are the four prohibitions so far. Um, the type of worship through fire that they serve the Molech with. A soothsayer who consults wood or rods. The diviner of auspicious times, which is either determining time that's auspicious or, well, which is literally divine or auspicious times, or deceiving the eyes. That's the third category. And actually, number four, we didn't read yet, so let's do that right now. One who interprets omens. Here we go. For example, bread falling from his mouth, a deer crossing his path, or a stick falling from his hand, which sound like superstitions, right? So if somebody takes the superstitions a little too seriously, it could be a problem. So if you say, oh my gosh, a deer crossed my path, and we today, we would probably say like a black cat, right? Because that's the one that's at least in popular parlance. Or stepping on a crack in the sidewalk, 
I mean, there was like a run, but you yeah. know, these types of things are looking in a mirror, breaking a mirror, or walking under a ladder, these types of things. I mean, maybe don't walk under a ladder for pragmatic reasons, but to associate, yeah, to associate the superstition with a power and a real force and be really afraid could potentially cross a line that the Torah says not to cross. So interpreting omens, not a kosher thing to do. Next, the next four are the Charmer, the Pithom Sorcerer, the Adoa Sorcerer, and the Necromancer. So what are these? Rashi explains T-G-F-R. Thank God for Rashi. Because Rashi explains, sorry for having to work that out live, but here we go. What is a Charmer? It means one who collects snakes, scorpions, or other creatures into one place. And you might say, well, it sounds like a zoo. So what's, no, but it means the charmer is like the snake charmer. Yeah, we know snake charmers. I don't, we know personally, but I'm saying snake charmers. They're people that charm snakes and have all these snakes. Not a Jewish thing to do. Next, what about a pithom sorcerer? Also not good, but what is that? So Rashi says, this is a type of sorcery called pithom. Hold on one second. I want to get back to snakes. This is a thing in the South. Are you guys with me on this? Yes, mm -hmm. yes, a thing in the South. And people speak in tongues yeah. while, they, while they handle snakes. They handle snakes and then they speak in tongues. And then every once in a while you hear about the guy who got bit by it and died, unfortunately. Yeah, so look, the, you could read the Torah saying not a good idea to, to hang around poisonous snakes, but also to associate it with some sort of power and some sort of divine revelation, not kosher, not Jewish. Do people do it? Yes! If no one did it, the Torah wouldn't say not to do it. Why? Because then it wouldn't need to tell us not to do it because no one was doing it. The Torah says don't do things that others do. It's not a Jewish way, including being a snake charmer and that whole thing. Next, Pithom Sorcerer, back to the second point that I interrupted myself with. This is a type of sorcery called Pithom. What is that? The sorcerer raises the spirit of the dead and it speaks from his armpit. All right. I've never seen that before, but I guess that's a good thing. So this is somebody who claims that they can raise the spirit of the dead and they can communicate or the spirit of the dead will communicate through them with, through the armpit. Okay, it's a thing. It's a thing that was that Moses says, do not do this. It's not kosher. Next, what about a Yidoah sorcerer? Rashi explains here in this form of sor sorcery, the source, oh, oh, one thing, one thing. The Torah doesn't imply that these things are a fraud or bogus. The Torah says it's not kosher for the Jew. The Torah is not saying there's no power in this, there's no ability in this, there's no uh, uh, um, force in this. There might be a force. There might be a, um, an, an illicit spiritual power here. Don't do it. Yedoah sorcerer here, the sorcerer inserts a bone of the animal called Yedoah, that's the name of the bone of the animal, into his mouth, and the bone speaks by means of sorcery. So instead of it coming through the armpit, actually it doesn't say raising the dead, but whatever, some sort of force is speaking through the bone in the person in the sorcerer's mouth. Again, not kosher, not Jewish. Finally, necromancer, here we go. This is, as for example, this refers to one who raises the dead spirit upon his membrum or one who consults 
a skull. These are things that are not kosher. Not kosher to consult and raise the dead spirits. This is something that's definitely done in, in, or, or claimed to be done today in, 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 certain, in certain places, whatever. You know, um, oh, the spirit of your grandmother is telling me something or other, right? This, this whole, that whole thing, not, not a kosher thing to do, not a Jewish thing to do. Not kosher for the Jew. I'm going to toggle Rashi off. I hope this all makes sense. And let's look at the final few verses here. Verse number 12. It's kind of creepy. It is kind of creepy. <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful that we don't have this stuff as part of our tradition, a spiritual tradition. Right. I kind of like uh, what we got. Studying Torah, doing a mitzvah, right? Prayer. All yeah. seems fairly innocent. Okay, here we go. Verse 12. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. Moses says, you know why God's kicking them out and putting you in? Because they're doing all this stuff. So you don't go ahead and start doing those things, because then your fate is going to be like theirs. You're going to get kicked out of the land. I told you before, and you, you probably know on your own, that ultimately we were kicked out of the land, at least temporarily, right? We were exiled because the first temple was destroyed because of idolatry. So clearly there was what to worry about. Um, Moses had what to worry about and, and, it, and it ended up not being so good in this area. So Moses says, remember, before you make any mistake, any, any moves here, just remember that the reason why you're here in Israel or you'll be in Israel, because he wasn't there yet, is, um, is because the other nations were doing these things. So don't copy them. Don't do them. And then the, f the final verse, which I love. It's one of the... I really love this verse. Verse 13 right here. Tamim im Hashem Be wholehearted with the Lord your God. And wholehearted could mean wholehearted, sincere. Um, I'm going to use the word simple. Hearted. Um, what's another good word for this? Innocent. Um, don't try to outsmart the system. Don't try to game the system. Why do people go to sorcerers? Why do people go to the tarot card readers? Why do people go check their horoscopes? Why? Because they want to know what's going to happen. They want to get the inside scoop on something. They want to know, like, if this happens, that's going to happen. When am I going to meet the person in my dreams? When am I going to strike a ridge? When this, when that? People love opening up fortune cookies, right? We, we all want to get an inside scoop. Everyone wants an inside scoop. And the Torah, Moses reminds us here, Tamim tia im Hashem be wholehearted with Hashem. That means you don't need to look for what's going to happen. Be in the moment, live in the present, and believe wholeheartedly that Hashem has got your back. You have nothing to worry about. Hashem is with you. If you and I trusted completely in Hashem, we wouldn't need, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Do you trust? If you trust, you're good. Does that make sense? Yeah? This whole notion that I need to find out what's going to happen, I need some inside scoopage, that's all a product of the anxiety or the uncertainty that is born of not having faith or trust in Hashem. I'm not trying to make it sound easy. 
I'm just telling you, this is what this verse means. This is the core of it. Let's see what Rashi says. Rashi says, be wholehearted means conduct yourself with him, with God, with simplicity, and depend on him. In other words, this beautiful word, betimimus, simplicity, sincerity, just pure. And depend on him. In other words, re- rely on Hashem. And do not inquire of the future. Again, the connection between these two ideas is inquiring of the future indicates that you don't rely on Hashem. It's like, I need to know so that I can figure this out or make a plan or whatever it is, or I I need to know, I want that control or that power. You don't need the control, right? If you completely rely on Hashem, depend, I don't like that translation, I would rather have it rely or trust, right? So sincere trust on Hashem alleviates my need to inquire of the future. Rather, with no expectations. That's a powerful idea. Thank you, Joy, for mentioning that. No expectations. Because expectations are the kryptonite to happiness. The moment we expect, right, then at best our expectations are being met. At worst, we're fa- it, the, it's, they're failing to be met, and now I'm upset. So either way, I'm not happy, right? Just think about it. If I expect something, so when it happens... New, what took you so long? When it doesn't happen, I can't believe it. This is ridiculous. But where's happiness? Nowhere in that scenario. When you recognize that the world doesn't owe me anything, life doesn't owe me anything, God doesn't owe me anything, and everything is a blessing, and everything is amazing, everything is a, is a, is a blessing from Hashem and from others, there's an openness. There's a sincerity, a simplicity. There's a, a tamimustik. I don't know how to say it in, in, in English. There's a, there's a beauty over there and a, and a joy that's born of that. Here we go. Rather, Rashi says, accept whatever happens to you with unadulterated simplicity. That means just pure purity. And then you will be with him and to his portion. And then, and then we're with Hashem. Okay, so this is, again, I love this final verse, this instruction, because this really summarizes why we shouldn't be running after all of those other things that the Torah says not to run after, right? If, if we are with Hashem and, Hashem's with, and we believe and we trust that Hashem's with us, then we won't, won't need to do the molech worship with fire, so saying, divining the times or the illusions or the omens or the sorcerer, the charmer, the pizzle. You don't need all these things. This ties directly into the topic of astrology. Many of you may know that I've done um, several courses on Jewish astrology from the perspective of Judaism and Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. There's a lot to say on the topic. I'm not going to go through it now. You can find my videos online, many different sources. Just look up uh, my name and then astrology or Kabbalah astrology or Jewish astrology and you can find videos. Um, But here's what I want to leave you with. In Judaism, we don't need astrology. Why? Because astrology means I want to know what's going to happen based on this sign, that sign, this month, that month, to know what's going to happen. I don't need to know what's going to happen. I trust that Hashem is going to, whatever's in front of me, I'm going to need. Whether it's good, I'll need that. If it's challenging, I need the challenge. I I need the hurdle to jump over. 
That, that's, that means trusting Hashem. Trusting that Hashem is not giving me anything that I can't handle, and whatever Hashem is giving me is for my benefit. That's what trust is. So do I need to consult astrological signs and the horoscope and, and the future? I don't need that. At the same time, Jewish astrology, I'm not going to get into the details of it, but the general idea is that based on certain factors, we can understand what our strengths might be and what our weaknesses might be so that we have indications of what to work on. So it doesn't tell us about the future. It doesn't tell us what's going to happen. Jewish astrology is more about understanding ourselves and focusing our work where we need to work on. I hope that makes sense. Again, without, without specifying what that actually means, that's kind of the framework for it, and the rest you can explore and, uh, and study on your own. Okay, um, I think that takes us to the end of today. Yeah, look at that. We're at the time. We're past the time. So any questions or comments before we wrap up? Yes, Donna. So I thought of this yesterday, and then you also kind of addressed it a bit in your email for tonight. I'm wondering if the prohibition to return to Egypt or visit Egypt, is that just from that time, or does it apply today and then are all of our adversaries in the region? Amazing question, and um, we're going to address it tonight. Everything you've ever wanted to know about the Jewish relationship with Egypt is going to be in tonight's class. It's an amazing class. Before you book your vacation to the pyramids, to the Nile, to Cairo, to wherever, you got to check out tonight's class. Amazing. It's a beautiful class. Does it also apply to, right now, we have so many countries which are adversaries to Israel. Does it apply? Well, you'll see tonight. We'll, we'll talk about this tonight. Yeah, I mean, I could share, but why not? I just join. addressing it. No, I just... Yeah, no, no. We're, yeah, no, for sure. It's going to be addressed, fully addressed. From the, the ancient perspective, modern perspectives, we're going to ask the question, well, how did Maimonides live there? What was that? Was he living in... Like, what, what's going on there? There's so much to talk about. But honestly, tonight, we're taking a topic, Jews in, Jews in Egypt, right? Jews and Egypt. And A to Z, we're going to cover it. And it's related also, to this week's Torah portion. Tomorrow at the Friday in the retreat, in the morning, there's a class on Kabbalah and astrology. Oh, nice. Very cool. Very cool. All right, good. So um, tonight, 7.30. Bye, Joy. Good to see you. Or hi. Hi, bye. Okay. <laughs> Great to see you. So tonight, 7.30, we have our Torah studies class on the topic of Egypt and then tomorrow, don't forget, no DPP tomorrow at 12. We're off tomorrow because I will be teaching at the National Jewish Retreat here in Stone Mountain. Um, and I will see some of you there as well. It's going to be a lot of fun. And um, what else? What else? Tomorrow, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Check out the upcoming programs. I sent out an email yesterday. I hope you got it. I hope everyone's on the email list. If not, let me know. Send me an email and I'll make sure you're on it. But we sent out an email yesterday with four upcoming programs to get ready for the holidays. Um, so join us for those. It's going to be a lot of fun. And otherwise, stay tuned for more exciting announcements coming up. All right. Sandrine, Ray, Donna, Olia, Sarah, great to see you all. Take Thank care. You, pleasure, pleasure. Good to see you guys. Thank you, Rabbi. Pleasure. Take care.